0: are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts, from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Welcome to Primal Radio, live from Belgium. You'll probably hear a little bit of background noise because we're in a hotel lobby, but nothing can be done about that, unfortunately. I'm here with Hock Hockheim, who you would have listened to in show 12. Um, he's a guest that's definitely worth having back on. I've come all the way to Belgium to train with him for a weekend. He's been hosted by Sven Dendunka. I Hopefully I've said that roughly right. And uh, we're doing four days of training, one day with the police exclusively, and three days with privileged civilians like myself. I'm also here with Dieter Kazir, who's head of Primal Europe. Welcome to the show. Folks. Yes.
1: <laughs>
0: so you're here you're, it's part of a world tour you do this every year
1: every right? year 23 years this is my 23rd anniversary
0: but 13 allied countries i think you always yes refer
1: and it to. sometimes i only get though to 11 a year you know sometimes 12 sometimes 11.
0: it's not bad going though
1: right uh, no it's not it's weary i'm very weary of uh, the travel <laughs> but it keeps me busy, keeps me going, you know. That's great. And you are, you are trying to cut down a little bit, right? Well, yeah, I, I would like to uh, hit two like American Canada area seminars a month. And uh, when I go overseas though, it's smarter to do at least three right the, over the trip. So that winds up being three that month. Yeah, I always make an effort to, to uh, slow down a bit and it seems to be difficult some months are difficult there's many holidays and you wind up squeezed for weekends and time and stuff you know so it's it's kind of hard to just do two and uh not get squeezed out somewhere right
0: so you've got a recent trip in the uk which i couldn't make unfortunately and that was um hosted by jethro in bristol uh-huh. interviewed by the bbc that was a successful trip massimo's coming up in italy so you, you've got like kind of regular guys who, who host you
1: yes yeah and it's usually in an annual rotation but I go to Italy sometimes three four times a year because they uh, have me there in the middle of the week and they have said anytime you're in Europe on one weekend and the following weekend come to Milan and we'll do something for three days so (coughs) usually Tuesday Wednesday Thursday so uh, that's a great opportunity for me you know to stay busy keep working Talk us through like the kind of program you deliver, the way you structure the training material you deliver on these trips. Mostly it's a hand, stick, knife, gun, and we call the courses force necessary, which is an old police expression using only that force necessary to win or survive. So I have a, a hand course, a stick course, a knife course, a gun course, and through the years I have tried to melt them together but unsuccessfully. Like for example, in the like two, year 2000, 2001, I tried to call them training mission one, which is essentially hand, one stick, one knife, one gun, one. Yeah. Training mission five, hand, five stick, five, and so on. But as important as that was, it that didn't catch on, people didn't get it. And lots of people don't want to do gun, or they or they don't want to do stick, you know? And yeah. so I, I was kind of forced, to, rather than having a, a handstick knife gun standing seated ground mixed weapons program i've had to parse it out i had to split it up so i have to present it in different ways separately and that's okay but
0: i prefer the big picture that is very interesting because say in the filipino stuff that i do we talk about the weapons kind of being interchangeable so the way you would swing an angle one or an angle four would be the same with a knife or a stick, albeit that you take into account the characteristics of that weapon. I.e., one is you know got a cutting edge, the other one is you know blunt force yeah. and has more range. Do you feel like that covers the full spectrum of weapons? I mean, there's like you know the stick is like the equivalent of a baseball bat, and the knife is the equivalent of a sword. And you know, is there any is there anything that we, we're kind of missing out on in that?
1: Well, <clears throat> in terms of modern stuff. No, in terms of, you know, there there probably will always be a nuance between a baseball bat and a stick or a crowbar. And so while it is the same and the angles are the same, there's just a couple of maybe weird things that uh, don't fit or you have to modify with a crowbar in your hand as opposed to a stick, you know, and or a cane because of the hook yeah and so there's always a little bit of modification i'm always worried about that and the the, the thing I, I do not teach marksmanship in the gun course and yeah. so it, that i want you to go do somewhere else as well as i want people to do uh, things with someone else too uh, I, all these different things you know to, to get more experience and more time but i i avoid marksmanship uh, for several reasons. One of them is it's extremely boring to me to teach a group of people how to shoot. Right. I really would rather go to the dentist. Yeah. You know, I, and and uh, I, I obviously you have to shoot and shooting has become a chore for me because it was a chore on the job. You know, you'd be working a case working and all of a sudden you're ordered to go to the range and qualify and it disrupts your life, you know. So through time, through decades, it becomes like, damn, I got to go to the range. Today's the last day. I'm supposed to be in court. And it gets into your head that it's like a chore. Very interesting. You know? And so a lot of people love to shoot and that's fine. I'm happy for them. Uh, uh, but after I I fired my first pistol in 1969, it's now 2019, and I'm going to the range now to work on uh, the the depth of the finger insertion inside the trigger guard on the trigger yeah because it, it's my belief and the belief of many others many respected people that when you're in desperate situation you grab a handful of gun and pull it out you often don't get the picture perfect marksman range grip and 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 tip of the finger and so you know I have, a, I have several revolvers that are mostly the same small 38 caliber ones yeah. and then I have my big 45 semi-auto uh, we used to call them 45 automatics but they, they're not yeah. technically automatics so 45 auto but um, you know I, I'm now I'm going to the range just to try to work on that finger you know you obviously have to have a direct pull and you can do that straight in pull in different lengths of the finger not just the tip. Yeah. But when you're in group instruction, you know, you, you can't go to individuals and try to worry about their finger position and all like that. It's a group right. class, put the tip of the trigger on there. But, but um, you know, I have pulled my gun out in desperation and the situation has calmed down. I haven't moved my hand on the gun and I look down and my fingers deep into that trigger guard because it's an old oh crap moment. And you just grab a handful of gun. You don't even know what you have fingers on your hand. You know, and it, out it comes. And uh, so that's what I, you know, I know I have to go to the range and shoot, but it gets very boring for me very fast.
0: Understood. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can't think of a place I'd rather be, but I understand what you mean. While we're on the gun stuff, so you, you've been doing some work a little bit with our friend Art Carson down at, at Nashville's uh-huh. uh, Royal Range. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, uh, you know, that uh, the Royal Range is a converted movie theater from a movie theater to gun ranges and classrooms, and so it's a fascinating place. And they were already almost soundproof because they were movie theaters. Right. So you can't hear, you know, what's going on in the other rooms. It's a fabulous uh, lobby of uh, equipment for sale, and you rent. You can rent guns. You can shoot the big sniper rifles, which is always a big kick, uh, literally in your shoulder, yeah. and you know the the sound. So I'm I'm there now twice a year with the prospects of trying to create bigger events that interest gun people. And so I, you know, I will be back in September, I do one day knife, which gun people are interested in the knife, they will carry a knife. And the second day, Saturday night, someone there will do live fire. Yeah. Combatives live fire of some course. And then Sunday, uh, I'm gonna do what I like to do with guns, and that's interactive, safer ammo shooting. We're shooting each other in a variety of, of situations. And so, you know, next September, we, I go there in like September and February, and the next one will be about something else. You know, unarmed, but not martial arts. These guys don't want to do martial arts. They want to fight. Maybe they'll do MMA, but they want to fight. They want to shoot. They want to have knives, guns, and expandable batons, you know. Nice. Yeah.
0: <laughs> USA. What audience do you...
1: Well, I don't like some of the people that uh, are, you know, carrying the the red skulls and the death insignias and all this stuff, you know, those and, and they come at all different ages. But, you know, the martial mafias, I was a cop my whole life. I fight the mafia. Yeah. You know, and so I can't get into the suggestion of criminality or, uh, uh, you know, these the the gang look, the thug look that a lot of these uh, people do, and they're not thugs when you meet them. They're just normal, nice people. But, you know, they got a tattoo on their head of killing somebody or something. You know, it's just very strange. And so I don't want to attract them, and they're not really interested in, in me either. And so I usually have. Not many martial artists. Yeah. You know, they're just people who want to learn how to fight, or they are martial artists and they were like me, dissatisfied with what they were doing in the past. It was incomplete. Where's the gun part? Where's the ground fighting part? You know, they're they're dissatisfied with with what they've been doing. So basically, anybody that is on our mailing list or is reached out through mailings and so forth are probably the you know the people that I want to reach.
0: And you work a lot with cops, for example, what's the difference between, say, what you'd be doing with the cops you worked with yesterday here in Belgium versus what you do with the civilians you've worked with today?
1: Well, um, this is an important issue because it it doesn't come up frequently enough. And that is you see a chorus by master commander SWAT team Joe Jones, and he innocently, naively winds up showing citizens police responsibilities, policing type stuff. Yeah. you know like today I mentioned that you know in so many police agencies you cannot do a downward strike with a stick because it's suggestive of a headshot yeah you know but yet you should be able to do that on a weapon bearing limb or whatever but you will get fined and in trouble for this but citizens can do it yeah you know so there's a, a, a advantage to that of being a citizen and the expectation of citizen defending himself, is less of an expectation than the police doing it. You know, you're supposed to be trained. You're supposed to have self-control. You're supposed to be a psychologist. And citizens don't have to be those things, you know? So it's a bit more stringent. Now, I'm always discussing self-defense law, but with the police, we have other levels to worry about, you know? And so that's one big thing right there. As I like to explain quickly to people in the introduction of the seminars, uh, it's hands to the police judo course is hand, stick, knife, gun, with a lot of cop stuff before, during, and after. And it's all of these issues, you know. The very fact that when you have to arrest somebody who is going to fight, you know you have to do stuff that doesn't work first. And when that fails, you get to do the serious stuff that does work. If you follow what I'm saying. You got to try to get them to submit, try to get them to... And you're doing a bunch of things that you know is just not going to work and then finally they resist they resist and you're justified in in escalating and then you do something that that does work that you should have done first but you can't do it because of today's uh dilemma
0: (laughs) you're a career cop both both military police and, and then in texas you chose to spend your entire career out on the streets in the thick of it you never wanted to go into head office or anything like that You truly loved it, right? This was the thing you were born to do.
1: Well, possibly addicted to it. I I guess I loved it, but I just made that commitment Uh, when I was first looking for for a job, something to do. uh, I wanted some action. I wanted to be interested, but I was just a knucklehead looking for action. Yeah. And so I got into the military police, very difficult as a biker from New York in Texas a biker dude trying to get hired by police departments in Texas when you're 19 years old 18 years old so the only choice I had was going the army so I went into the army and uh, military police Academy and uh, every that's my college I mean anything terrible that could happen to you happened to me in those military police years that was my first initiation to so many things you know so then I started to get a little bit wiser and realize You know, this is kind of important. This is kind of important stuff. And I also have a knack toward investigation. And so they made me a military police investigator, and I worked general investigations and narcotics. And I don't want to do that, but that's where they put you. They put me there, they needed people, they put me there. And so then when I got back to Texas, they wanted me because I was this experienced, you know. And so I never had an aspiration to be a desk bound, uh, administrator. And, and, you know, my friends are so well to do now with their high salaries of captain and lieutenant and assistant chief, and they get a new car every year and an yeah. advanced vacation. And, uh, the retirement is gigantic. They're now 40 years, 40, 45 years, you know, and, and I would tell anybody now take those damn tests. You know, don't be like me. And I have unfortunately influenced some of the other detectives to be this way. I see them and they still have the same terrible job I did, you know, and they're there for years and years. And I said, man, take a test, get some money for your life and the rest of your life, you know. But um, the the challenge of the cases interested me. The challenges of what of what was going on when you're working a murder. It's the World Series. It's the World Cup. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a sports athlete, you want to be in the World Cup. So if there's a freaking murder, I want it. I want to work on it because that's the world series of police work to me. Yeah. And so you don't get that when you're a lieutenant uh, in, in charge of personnel, you know. That's and right. you and by the way, when you get promoted, you can't pick where you're going to work. You, oh, we need a lieutenant uh, in charge of parking. <laughs> you know what you wind up there and so that's one of the main reasons why I never took a test I just stayed working in what they call line operations but I don't recommend that anymore but but still for me that's that's what I did you
0: know so, so you've um you've seen a lot change right over the years with the advent of DNA CCTV the internet has it become much easier to solve crimes or has it just brought a load of new
1: challenges, do you think? I think uh, it's become easier. Uh, just the very fact that uh, so many intersections are under television, you know. And if you have a crime and somebody's fleeing the crime scene, uh, you can see all the intersections of all the cars and so on, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's just one, one amazing thing. We had none of this. I remember uh, presumably 1990 or something, one of me and one of my partners went to a D, we went to an investigation school in Austin and a half a day was on DNA. Wow, what is that? You know, what the- and they tried to explain it to us and we were just like, oh, that sounds pretty, huh? You know, <laughs> I'm interested in a lot of things and I kind of knew that that was on the horizon, but it's a big deal now and it would be tremendously helpful Years ago, I was involved in working cold cases a couple of yeah. years back, and the the old the police chief then was a guy I trained in in patrol and detectives, and uh, he said, you know what? Let's try to solve these old murders, and basically only Hawk remembers them. Uh, because I was so involved in all that, and even if it wasn't my case, I would stick my nose in it. Yeah. You know. And so um, they they uh, asked me to come in, and they threw a couple of cases down. Do you remember this? What do you think about this or that? And so we we solved a murder that was you know thirty five years old. And this was after you've left the force. Yes. Thir- yeah. We years and years after I left the force, and so long, it's a long story. I don't want to get into that, but the nice. but the point being that we solved it with pretty much DNA. In nineteen eighty one, a guy killed somebody in a hotel, stabbed him thirty-six times. Our crime scene guy was smart enough to sample blood everywhere. Because we did know that when you're in a knife fight, the the attacker often bleeds too. He gets cut and bleeds too. And so Russell Lewis, you know, collected blood from all over and as time marched on. They call it like low-hanging fruit. Well, let's start with the new science and apply it to these old cases. And we got some hits. Yeah. You know, and uh, we wound up arresting a family man up in, uh, I think, Minnesota. I was away on a trip, but they filmed it for me. Nice. You know, the arrest. But uh, the reason I don't do it anymore is it's extremely frustrating. The district attorney uh, does not want to get a case that's 40 years old. You know they, they they look at you and say god really this witness is dead this is old." I, and, and you know not unlike on television where everyone's excited you've cleared one i got the opposite flow so we arrested the guy and everything and i just said you know i'm just not going to do this anymore because of the even the they give you a modern day detective because my commission's expired i can't get on Various computer systems, new systems, and so on. I just can't. I'm not. I can't do it. It's illegal. So I have to get these guys to do it, and they, they don't really want to do it. You know, it's yeah. Forty years old, and I've got these new cases to work on, and so it was a very. It was a real grind, but I was still obsessed with it. And another reason I don't want to do it anymore: it is a heroin that I don't want to touch again. Yeah. Because it, it, you know, probably ruined two marriages. It's just a heroin that I, I, I cannot taste anymore. It takes over your mind with frustration.
0: So I was reading a story about a murder that you solved where a professor had been killed yeah. and a guy had stolen a Mercedes Benz and his television. And through old school detective work, you tracked this guy down and you were saying that at the time you had bits of hair falling out because yes. you were, you were yeah. diagnosed so Well, my so second unstressed. wife
1: had cancer. Oh. During that time, yeah and she was getting uh, the first treatments also at that particular time the police chief detective captain only wanted me to work murders now i just want to remind everybody in our city we just only had four or five murders a year right you know not it wasn't like san diego where there's 80 of them and that, this was Dallas. dallas, dallas yeah forward. north of dallas yeah, yeah. Right. but they just wanted me to work on them because i had some pretty good successes so this professor gets killed and it doesn't matter who's dying in my house you know we you've got to go yeah. and so they and it's a big media thing mystery a college professor killed and so yeah i lost uh they call it um uh, that's a word for it you start losing your hair from stress alopecia yeah, alopecia yeah. lost my eyebrows which hardly ever came back lost pr- most of my mustache and you know I had a thick beard, and during that time period, I was going to shave, and I had a big hole in the beard, just as smooth as can yeah. be. I said, "What the hell is that?" You know. And then I lost a, the thick hair; was gone. Yeah. You know, so thank goodness. And then spots in my my hair, but it's gray. It came back gray and white, and so on. You know, that happens through time. uh, uh has happened through time with me. It's not so bad now, but at that particular time, I was pulled so many ways. You know the here's my wife who did die of of cancer has this problem and now i got to work this case and it's in the dallas fort worth media and i'm the only guy working the case you know and yeah and and so what happened is um the university of north texas where the guy worked they all think they're experts and so my friend who hired me was police chief of uh, the university and hired me years earlier And he said that they're all the professor department heads are all sitting around and they're saying, well, you know, if you if you can't solve a murder within 48 hours, it's never going to be solved. All these armchair experts, right? And so my friend Eric says that they all filter out into the lobby and there's the newspaper, the headline murderer arrested. And and they were all shocked. And he said he called me and said, I just thought you needed to know (laughs) to know that because it took weeks. Yeah. It just didn't take 48 hours you know it took weeks to work on that
0: yeah congratulations um a couple of questions one was it tough to leave the military police was it tough to leave the police and finally do you think you'd enjoy it as much if you were working in today's policing environment
1: it wasn't tough to to leave the, the army uh basically speaking and of course you're probably gonna figure this out too but if you're in the military it kind of sucks day-to-day life sucks yeah. and you start to you know I've taught before 9-11 I've taught many many Marines mostly yeah you know? at Quantico 29 Palms and Pendleton and everywhere and these guys are Marines yeah. and you know they're like 18 to 25 26 or something and I would give them a, a pep talk I just say you know you some bitches are Marines and you'll always be a marine, you know. And they just look at me like is this, this is a recruiter. What? What? what is, you know, we don't need to hear this shit. This this life sucks, you know. And I tried to tell them, be proud of this, yeah. you know, because I and um. But that's why they leave in three years, four years, because the actual day-to-day life in yeah. being in the military kind of sucks.
0: But you did say you wish you could have done the well. Reserve. I
1: I wish I had gone. I wish I had gone to Texas and did all that experience and then walk in to the recruiter knowing then how to work recruiters. You know, they're desperate. And uh, you could just go in and say, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. They say, oh, we can't do that. And I say, bye. If you yeah. think you can, call me. Three, two or three days later, I'm telling you, or at the end of the month, they'll be calling you. Yeah. You know? And uh, I would have returned in CID as a, det- as a, a, a detective. I would have insisted I go to CID. I, I went to MPI school but I want criminal investigations kinda of like the FBI of yeah. military police. I wanted to um, go to that particular school, become a warrant officer, all these different things. And yes, I would have gone six months in, in Iraq and six months in Afghanistan, but I'm cool with that. Yeah. You know, that that is not a problem for me. It might be for you know, my wife and kids, but you know, that's where that is action is. Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. go. But by and large, I could have done that as a secondary career. Yeah. You yeah. know? But anyway, so when my time was up, I got out. But it was very difficult leaving the Texas police job, but not so much because we had some idiots in charge.
0: Yeah.
1: Or my fa- One of my favorite police chiefs was promoted up into higher city management. And he had a dual job. They put a half a moron that had been there forever as the act, sort of acting police chief. And he just changed everybody. Changed everybody around. So basically, you know, the, the foot doctor became the heart doctor. The heart doctor became the knee, the, the knee doctor. And they took me and some other, and when we were in, back in patrol, I had just caught a hitman and, and filed 12 organized crime cases, me and a guy named Jeff Waro. And all of a sudden it, it's four o'clock in the morning and I'm driving uh, around. So I was back in patrol for about two and a half more years. And while I thought I loved patrol years earlier, I am really a detective. It's just a waste of me. Yeah. You know, and these fucking idiots just couldn't see it. And, and you know, they're not, and they're detached from everything our division did, our squad did. They're just sitting somewhere. They should be pumping gas at a gas station. Yeah. And and after 50, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, they just float to the top. It's the Peter Principle. So anyway, the killer for me, and I'll tell you, was I, I did a seminar weekend seminar early in january in in the north texas area dallas area and i had 97 people these were the great days of big seminars though at 97 people i had virtually cash almost twenty thousand dollars cash from two days wow so i got home and i and i was just counting this in front of you know jane my wife now and i just said this is like five months take home pay after tax Of being a cop yeah i had put on 30 40 pounds because i'm eating that extra breakfast at 4 a.m four meals a day my back was killing me and uh i said well and you know that was one of the reasons that i said i i have to quit you know and then the other big reason that really turned the tide for me and i don't want to spend too much time talking about it but um i was ordered to protect the ku klux Klan.
0: Yes. Yes. So that was a bodyguarding case. Yes, of, um, and job for uh, you. and
1: anybody basically over six foot tall that had been in the military, et cetera. You know, we got thrust into this position. Yeah. And they had applied to protest. Then the city's responsible for their safety. And the next thing you know, I'm I'm standing in front of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. And I just said, what has happened in the universe that I am standing? protecting the Ku Klux Klan, how did this happen to me, you know, and so then later that day was also, uh, that was a little bit after the seminar where, and I just said, I got to get out of this,
0: you know, and I don't
1: blame the captain who assigned us this gig, he's a good guy, he was just doing his job and if you're over six foot tall and had been in the military, <laughs> you're just going to do it. But those were two reasons why, where I left. Had I, I tell my friends this all the time, had, that, had the job change not happened, though, um, I wouldn't have been doing that, you know, uh, uh, the Ku Klux Klan thing. But it's very possible I would still be a detective there. 23 years later, but it was the it was the switch to patrol, and then the ability to make all this money it was unbelievable. You know, but we don't see 97 people in seminars or anything like that unless Elvis Presley's there. Today, it's all shrunk down. Now everybody's doing what me and seven guys did in the 90s. Everybody's doing it, so the competition is vast and distracting and, and all out there. Do you think you'd enjoy the job as much? Um, as well? I don't know. Having been out, of course, I was a private investigator. Then three years after that, yeah, and I worked with a lot of lawyers that I knew, and I had a good working relationship with these defense attorneys because they knew I tried to give everybody a good deal. You know, I, I was I didn't do anything illegal or plant evidence or anything like that. So I had a good re- relationship with the lawyers, and I and I worked with them, and we got, got court appointed on cases, and the powerlessness. <clears throat> of being a private investigator I had a badge and I was certified by the state and the judge appointed me to do serve this warrant do this do this I was virtually powerless compared to being a cop it was yeah. very frustrating I couldn't get into places people ignored me told me to fuck off I'd have to go back to the judge and say I can't serve this person they're dodging me they won't answer the door then you know they get the, then they order the local police and me to go down there yeah you know? but anyway and then my wife got a job at out of state and I let the license expire. You know, it was a Texas license and I'm in Georgia and I'm not, I don't know anybody in Georgia to get any jobs there, you know. So, and that's when I did most of the bodyguarding though, as a private investigator. They kept me on uh, in the protection roles uh, of these several companies, which are really no longer in existence, but uh, these people write a book, do a record album, or have some event. They went to two or three companies to tour Oklahoma and Texas. And those guys hired me to do it. I was top of their list, See, you know? I saw Tom
0: Clancy, were there any other notable people well, you protected?
1: Really, there's so many that I can't, I couldn't sit here and I've asked, been asked that question before. Yeah. You know, Jimmy Carter, yeah, the president, and Rudy Giuliani, yeah, which was a, yeah. co- was a big, that was a national company up north. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that wasn't just a Texas deal. Green Day, the band, uh, God, I just can't remember all the people and um, they were pretty much uneventful. Nothing ever happened. We did yeah. a good job and, and nothing happened. And so then that tour train had disappeared. You know, the bookstores are disappearing slowly. It just sort of dried up and nobody's doing these tours anymore. Mm. You know? At any rate, there's a, uh, some country western singers, you know, that you yeah. probably had never heard of here Tanya Tucker and people like this. And a couple of authors, the, um, as I'm sitting here, OJ Simpson's attorneys, they all wrote a book Yeah. from years ago. They had a circuit there I was, you know, yeah. with them. So, uh, that kept me pretty busy during, during that time. Largely boring work. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Terribly boring, you know, and the, but you're nervous. And especially like with Rudy Giuliani, he was a real target for terrorists. But he also had a NYPD protection team, but as I tried to explain to these people with uh, uh, Jimmy Carter and George Bush, senior, uh, but certainly with Jimmy Carter, was the Secret Service don't do everything. And, you know, I said, that's what they said, oh, you know, the Secret Service was going to take care of Jimmy Carter so you don't have to worry about it. And I just said... The Secret Service does not do everything, so get ready. Oh, it'll be okay. Then they came in to the promotion agency, and they said, okay, who's hiring the off-duty cops? What about traffic on the parking lot? What about this? What about that? And they said, uh, uh, get Hawk on the phone. And with Rudy, I went to the places first and yeah. scoped them out, and then they arrived. An yeah. NYPD protection team, bunch of tough guys you know, with guns. Yeah. And, what do you got? And I knew, you know, various pathways, he goes to the hotel, to the speaking engagement, what's the safest way to go and all that stuff, you know. Right. It was pretty boring, but it's nerve wracking, but it's boring.
0: Going back to the, um, you know, how it was back in the day, we kind of touched upon it earlier on but it was a bit easier to say rough someone up to get them to snitch or yeah. find out some information you're allowed to carry a number of different weapons that you wouldn't yeah. be allowed to carry yeah. now tell us a bit about that and well we had without putting yourself yeah but well, we we, we had brass knuckles
1: uh, we had uh, the, what they call a SAP. I, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's, you know, it's a leather device with, with a metal in the end you slip your hand in, and it's only about this long, and uh, you hit people with it. And if you really want to hurt them, you turn it sideways. You know, the, the, if you keep it straight up, it sort of flaps a little bit, yeah. but if you turn it sideways, it's like a piece of metal. You know? We had the motorcycle gloves that had the lead in the fingers, and you know, you, you you could smack somebody with that. And these are all things that they collected up in about 1984, 85, yeah. that you can't have anymore. The, the world, not just Texas, but perhaps places like Texas, realized that we need to protect the citizens. They understood what we were doing. They understood criminals. You know, they they thought poorly of criminals. <laughs> So we used to do things that, that, you know, yeah, they'd say, yeah, that's great. You know, uh, that's son of a bitch, yeah, you know. And so it was just a a, a different time. yeah I could tell you so many stories. I don't know, we're probably running out of time, but, you know.
0: Do you approve of, I guess, the
1: militarization
0: of the police? I mean, you were saying you had more weapons back then.
1: Uh, No, I don't. And uh, the problem that uh, today is... um, You look at the recruitment posters and pictures for police. I don't know how it is in London. All the commercials, all the posters and advertisements is a guy with a helmet and a machine gun and the big bulletproof vest. It's overwhelming. And the suggestion is become a cop, be this guy, wear this stuff and be this guy. But the police, uh, you know, are not that guy, except under terrible circumstances. They need to, I, I said probably yesterday or... Maybe today that if I were hiring uh, police today, I would want to know and pick the most charming people that yeah, could talk and you know have a, a way with words and so on. You know, mm. and I would, uh, and that would be a, a very important thing to me because these robot cops that uh, some of the, the horror stories you see on YouTube are just knuckleheads yeah. They never should have been there in the first place. And so no, I don't like the militarization of your average police force you know so you need swat hiding in the basement to yeah. come out and you need to have the you need to have the semi-auto or the long gun in the trunk but mostly you're just a guy driving around trying to help people that's right yeah <laughs> you know so I, I i don't like the the uh, suggestion that they're robot soldiers they're robocop
0: I was talking to you earlier about I guess the devastating impact that getting a criminal record can have on people these days and how it's just because the information is shared so widely that you know and stays with you for so long due to the data collection and the technology that's available these days you were saying that you know back in your day. People would have a fight with a police officer. It wouldn't be assaulting a police officer. You just put it down to, you
1: know. Whatever the original thing was like disturbing the peace or something. Right. You know. Yeah. Uh, we just, you know, it depends on who it is and what the situation is because if you're doing your job and ter- certainly in, in patrol and I was a, a as a in community oriented policing they wanted you to have a district that you knew I volunteered for the projects because that's where the action was you yeah. know and so during that period and so you know these people you know their story and they can't handle another crime you know are certainly a felony and you know them you know their family and you know you just have an emotional moment with them you know and you say uh we're just going to arrest you for what we would call a class c misdemeanor or a class b misdemeanor and you can't do this again you can't go get drunk do this do that you know yeah. and and uh, pick a fight what the hell are you doing with a pistol don't you know that these things you see you chew them out shake them up a bit and give them a deal, give them a break, you know? And the, usually your sergeant, most all the time, you didn't want the lieutenant to know this, but the sergeant's nodding, he's standing there by you, or, hey, this is what I did with so-and-so, you know, ah, that's a pretty good idea, you know? And, and it was just different now, uh, so I had mentioned that if a, a college kid takes a poke at me, you know, I would just not charge him with that, i charge him with public drunk or something. And let them graduate. I always say, if you walked into a major church now in my city, as has happened to me, I don't go to church, but I saw people going into the church. I could point out all the the criminals from the past. Yeah. And now they got jobs, they got kids, they got families. You know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost turned, killed. The,
0: they've turned it around.
1: I've almost I almost shot a guy one night who was a, dro- a dope dealer and a uh, real pain in the ass, right? And they were, they were burglarizing cars. We got a call about it early in the evening by, by Texas Women's University. And this guy takes off running. I can't even remember his name, but I chased him, right? And so he, I, he got into a, like a dead end by a fence in a garage and no place to go, he started to pull a gun on me. So I immediately pull my gun out and your hand is right on it right there. Don't even think about it, is what I said. You better drop that fucking gun or you're dead meat, right? And so he was down here like this and he dropped that revolver. And so I arrested him, but I was an eighth of an inch away from just blowing him the smithereens, not just one bullet. There's a 357 Magnum, Cole Python is what I had. And so he goes away to jail and he's a dope dealer and all like that. Well, about 10 years later, I'm working a rape case on a weekend And I kind of finish it up for Monday morning. I've been up all Saturday night. I'm driving down Fulton Road, big, gigantic Baptist church. People are going in, and I'm exhausted, and I kind of look over, and there's that guy with his two daughters and his wife going to church. And I just had this casual thought through my head, you know, I almost killed him one night. Yeah. And and, uh, that's a burden that you have in taking these actions and stuff like that you know and yeah. i'm not going to say risk your life to give somebody a break because he did drop the gun you know but it's just like i said you could walk into that church and point out everybody that was a son of a bitch at 16 18 22 years old and now they're 35 and they're different you know that's just the way it goes
0: in the same ways like police has become more militarized do you feel the criminals have got a lot worse? I mean, you've got Mexican drug cartels, etc., and you've got the opiates and um, crystal meth, the extreme sort of drug taking that turns people into absolute zombies, willing to do pretty much anything. You know, is it spiraling out of control?
1: Uh, it, it could be, and the cartel situation in south of uh, uh, Texas in America is just horrible. Mm. You know, these it, it is... Out of control, as is immigration, you know, if you build a wall, they'll figure out some other way. They're already smuggling in stuff all the time, but at least there's a freaking wall. So some idiot will say, well, electronic surveillance will stop. You know what? You put a camera out in the middle of Texas and you see, during an interview, I saw this on TV. 113 people jump a fence and come in. Yeah. There's not a border patrol agent for 150 miles. Yeah. So screw your visual surveillance. Yeah. You can watch them come in, but you can't do anything cuz you don't have a fucking wall. Yeah. You know? And so the um, the wall helps it it slows down the the uh uh you just need it and you start from there with yeah. all trying to solve all these other problems, but the cartels are terrible and they they get in with the corruption and it destroys yeah. any country that has this corruption you know yeah. th- and this type of corruption it, it destroys the stability and your confidence in, in, in the country
0: I read an interesting economics book that was talking about Cameroon and they were saying Cameroon is 50 times poorer than the USA and There's no real reason for that if you delve into, like, does it have natural resources? Yes, Yes. it does, etc. And the sole reason is the magnifying effect that corruption has. So in a corrupt country, the best person does not get the job. The friend gets the job. You can't borrow from the bank because the bank might just shut down or take your money. You can't have multiple businesses because you need to keep an eye on them because you can't trust anyone. And it's just a spiralling effect of of corruption. Yeah, a little
1: waffle there. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's true. I don't know uh, what the cure for it will be. I, that, there's the time for military action. And we've seen that in movies and books, and it usually backfires there. But one of my military uh, police sergeants said many years ago, you know, we were sitting in a bar drinking and talking about issues like this. This is even a long time ago. And he just took a shot of whiskey and he said, well, you know, there's just some sons of bitches that need killing. <laughs> and uh, it's true. And in Mexico, there's a running joke in Texas law enforcement that if, when you die, you should want to come back as a Mexican general, because they have tanks, they have armies, they have. I uh, arrested a, a murder suspect. He fled to Mexico, and for some, we knew where we found him, and they caught him. You know, there is functioning things yeah. going on. So they caught him and they said, well, here, you know, pick them up, bring them back, you know, extradite them back. And so uh, we got them up to the Mexico side of the, of the customs deal. and They wouldn't let us go through until we paid them $500. A Mexican general wanted $500. I had to call my captain. I said, you know, I need $500. What? And I said there's apparently a Mexican general here that wants five hundred dollars and I, I and I guess I'm gonna need it to get out of here too you know and so they had a wire us five hundred dollars and we got the guy back in there and he has money nothing did. to do with the crime he just heard like the mafia yeah. he just heard they were taking it well they you know I need some money on that you know. Speaking of the wall,
0: what's your view on how Trump's doing? He's just visited the UK. He's not very popular in the UK. I quite like the guy, I have to say, um, which dates back to watching him on The Apprentice. But how do you think he's doing and what would you like to see him do? Well,
1: he, you know, is surrounded by the enemy and there are many Republicans. He's just a complete anomaly, like Brexit. Yeah. He's a complete anomaly. He's a businessman. Nobody nobody likes him because he's going to come in and screw everything up, their way of life. But the American citizen, such as myself, is sick to death of the molasses Frankenstein that the American government is. You know, it's just unbelievable. And nobody gets anything done. And so Trump gets there, and he wants to do a bunch of stuff, and he's absolutely thwarted. You know, when he first got there, he had the, the House and Congress were Republicans. Couldn't get a wall, couldn't get anything done. You know because they didn't they didn't like him and 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 he's just not part of the boys club you know and so we want to see stuff done your average american wants a wall wants immigration policy that makes sense we've been screwed by tariffs for decades and every president has let it happen and trump comes in like a small naive child oh we can fix this oh no you can't (laughs) and and um are we we still are are notching up in the economy and jobs and and pay scale, uh, but it's been hurt by this tariff threat, this tariff yeah. war. He's trying to do good and, uh, and 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 just common sense good, and I do wish he'd shut up more. Yeah. And I and I do wish he wouldn't be tweeting so much. And I know how to handle. Alec Baldwin, or that big balloon of him as a crybaby, they flew over London. I'd, I could shut that down in a minute, but he's not hes not really smart enough. I would see that for the first time, and when they stuck a microphone in my face, I'd say, boy, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Where, did, where did that come I want one of those. <laughs> yeah, and right. I th- I'm i going to fly it every on my birthday. That yeah. would shut those people down. They would be so pissed that he would want that. And Alec Baldwin is on Saturday Night Live pretending to be the be trump every saturday night make him an idiot and they'd say what what would you think what do you think about that show and i'd say yeah, have you ever seen Ale- an alec baldwin in a bad movie he's a fantastic actor yeah yeah, yeah they yeah. just fuck them they would just yeah. fuck them up because they're they're not getting the hate back you know they're yeah. not they know they're not reaching them it's just that simple and then never bring it up again what's impressed me with him is that he, because he's not a politician,
0: as I, I like what you said about naively thinking he can change things. But what politicians tend not to do is deliver on their promises. Yeah. You know, he might not manage to deliver on his, but you can't say that he's not trying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if he doesn't get the wall done, he's trying to say, well, if that, that Mexico will have to pay for, yeah. you know, or, or they'll be Yeah. And you know, that's not Mexico.
1: impossible either. Yeah. Uh, through tariffs, but also, what's his name? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the the big drug dealer that they just arrested. We confiscated millions and millions and probably a billion dollars of his money. And so Ted Cruz, the Texas senator, says, let's write up a bill and take El Cupachero's money and build a wall. Well, it's a fabulous idea, but nobody does it. And so in a sense, Mexico would pay for the wall and it would be drug money. It's perfect. Why aren't we just doing this now? American citizen says, go, do it, do it now. And it just never manifests because the government is a Frankenstein, a slow moving molasses Frankenstein.
0: Yeah, definitely. Much like the UK government, which I think is even worse. I'd like to talk about two wonderful books that I've got here. They're your memoirs, if you will. Don't even think about it, which was your catchphrase and dead right there. Tell us a bit about them because people can learn all sorts of stories about your one and a half thousand arrests from these books, right?
1: Yes, and also you, it's a bit historical. I would really prefer that rookies would also read the book so they get a, an idea about some of the frustrations because they are confessions. You know, I've been a hero and I've been a goat, you know, yeah. and it's a, it's a, the, the subtitle Confessions and Memories of this, 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 and this, you know, so the first one, don't even think about it is what I would say this came out naturally probably from a Western when I get somebody in a, in a get that we, we used to say get the drop on them and so dead right there is a secondary line or you're dead right there you know the gun is out and so on I have never been in a close-quarter shootout and part of that reason that's a high statistic probability but it's been in cars and from a distance, and somebody shoot at me from a distance and stuff. And, and one of the reasons is I was very quick to draw my pistol. That doesn't mean I'm a quick-draw artist, I was just quick to get it out when I felt funky, yeah. you know? And then it prevented this guy from reaching and getting a gun. It's, it froze him and I'd come and take the gun off of him. A guy in bed, reaching for his pistol, reach it, I take the gun away from him. So the best pistol quick-draw in the universe is getting your gun out just before you really needed it. Yeah. As opposed to at the wrong time or later. So, those are two phrases that I used, and I'll say this in like 30 seconds. My father in law, who's now dead, was reading this book decades ago, you know. And I said, What you got there? This is a great book. It's about an insurance investigator and his cases. It's just fascinating. So, he was the way I picked up the book and I looked at it, and it's the most boring shit. <laughs> you know, this insurance and, and he and other people found that fascinating. Yeah. So I said, well, how maybe I need to write my stories down, you know, because they're way better than this, yeah. you know. And that's what kind of inspired me. And of course, people would, uh, you know, ask me at seminars. You know, the storytelling is an important aspect to learning. Yeah. It's absolutely. And I, you know, I can spend uh, uh, 25 minutes explaining the science behind that, but it it, it puts an emotional, every act of violence is a drama and a trauma, every punch, everything that we do in training and all that stuff. And so to emphasize the importance of that, you know, is, is to tell a story with that, not a big, long story, but, but something that makes you understand the drama and the trauma. You know, yeah. and so these stories are about that and uh, their actions. Some of them are actions. Some of them are terribly sad. The, the dead baby story in particular that I think is in dead right there. And uh, I don't think there'll be a third. Now, my wife has heard. I'm forgetting the stories, you know, and I'll think of something. We'll be driving somewhere and I say, you know, there was a dead guy over there. You never told that story before. And she thinks I've got another 15 or 16 stories to add to a third detective book. I don't think so. I, I you know I'd rather just let that be as it is. But they sell well, it's true crime. Most of it is about detective, but it's also your rise through patrol and weird stories about I don't want to get too autobiographical. You know, you open up a biography and the, you know, I was a small child in a farm in Iowa. People really don't want to hear that. You know? They don't want to hear I went to high school and I was semi popular. Who the fuck cares about that? (laughs) You know, I don't care who you are, president or whatever. People just kind of bust through that part of the biography. I do. Let's get to the war part where he goes into combat, you know. Anyway, people like them. They're good stories. And it's Texas history. It's policing, you know, the the history of policing. You you know, they they didn't allow us to have air conditioners in the beginning, right? It's 90, 100, 105 degrees. And so what we would do is shoot the police car, shoot holes in the floorboards of the police car. Go down to some liquor store, ice shop, buy a couple of bags of ice, put them on the floorboards and put the vent up high, and it would shoot cold air, and, it, and, and the bags would leak out the holes. Now, now, who knows that, you know what I mean? <laughs> but that's old school Texas policing, you know? and uh, that's, I, I explained that in the second book you know, Dead Right There nice, lots like of that. stories of stuff like that you know. the 1500
0: arrests so you kept meticulous records as you had to of those various arrests and when, when you were constructing these books was it looking back through that that brought them to life or was, was each event kind of in your head and well, um, then you checked the records for de- the details uh,
1: I'm, uh, first I'm going for an interesting story we had in the military police Academy you had to have a little notebook every cop had one and they always said have a dime in your pocket to make a phone call the phone booth <laughs> and yeah. and so I you collect them you save them because they're evidence yeah you never know when you know somebody you've arrested they want to see your notes and so on so I saved I have all of those for many years and I arrested Pete Smith you know uh, I'd have the, this listed. And then, of course, when you switch over to the computer systems and whatever, you can see that I have zeroed that down really easily documented to about 1,000 arrests, 950 or 1,000. Because yeah. here's the deal. You know, you're, you're my detective partner, and you got an arrest warrant for Pete Smith. Yeah. Hey, Hawk, come help me. We get in the car, we go arrest Pete Smith. But your name's on the report. But I also chased and fought and got him and handcuffed him. me and you did it, you know. And so I count that as one of my arrests, too, as an arrest. Cool, yeah. If I'm on a fugitive apprehension team and six of us arrested 35 people, that's 35 arrests that the, the computer will also have, too, as the team. But they're only going to type in the top two names or the top first name in the arrest report. So really, realistically, it's about a thousand. It might be 1,272, it might be 900, and, you know, it just gets lost as as time marches on. And then, uh, I guess about 95 or so, or 99, I just quit keeping track, because I trusted the computers. Yeah. You know, and that's also why I say it's in that general area, you know. And so, as far as the book is concerned, I always went for the story first. Yeah, memorable stories and I, I really didn't have to check you know those arrest blogs or anything like that you know. So I'll do two more questions okay. then we'll wrap up because
0: I've taken up a lot of your time now. What's your proudest moment as a law enforcement
1: officer? Well I found the proudest moments were leaving a successful courtroom case You know, and I I should have been proud more. And and frankly, I can't remember all of them, but they're very ironic moments when you had a really, really tough case. We had a Las Vegas mobster and his son got behind the mob with money. They needed money, so they came to our city and they beat up and robbed a psychic who they knew had gold bullion. And so she was kind of a popular figure. They came in with baseball bats. They beat her up, almost killed the husband. He died later of those wounds. And so, once again, they put me on the case. I think this is going to be in the Dead Right There book, (laughs) if you read the story, you'll read it. And, uh, well, long story short was I found the son and we arrested the father in Pennsylvania in a mountain chase. The, you know, we had the state police after him. He saw me, ran in the cold, it was horrible weather, and he almost died up in, this, in these mountains. So um, it was extremely difficult. The FBI wanted in on this because it's the mafia from Vegas. Yeah. And so my second book, the novel, the second uh, is called Be Bad Now. And so the son, his mother worked at an Italian mafia restaurant in Dallas right and so we got information from someone that he's always eating for free at this particular restaurant it's yeah. changed hands many times they'll never hear it's it called campisi's restaurant yeah. <laughs> and so i got when, when when i proved that these guys are interstate f- fleers the feds came in i got one of my favorite fbi agents ex big city detective swat team guy he wasn't this lawyer kind of Agent, he was an ass kicker, street guy, right? Yeah. Loved to work with him, and he says, "Okay, we're going to get federal warrants on these guys, and this way I can, I can." And they stake out that club, you know. And so I'm working, and the radio radio says, uh, "89, uh, call the station. Call and said there's an FBI agent in Dallas at a restaurant. Says your guy is in the restaurant." So I call call his radio, radio, and I said, I'm going to be there. Do not arrest this guy, right, until I get there. And I bust over there about 110 miles an hour, meet the feds. We're sitting there, and this guy comes out of the restaurant and walks into a phone booth and starts making a phone call. So me and that FBI agent run across the highway with our guns out, push open that door, you know, and he's got two big guns in his face, and the FBI agent says something very cool. 'Cause he's a cool guy. Because this guy this bad guy's beating old people, robbing them, you know, with a baseball bat And he says, I heard, oh, we heard that you're a real bad dude. Well, be bad now. And I got a chill. I just look boy, that's fucking cool. <laughs> what a line that was, you know. And and so we arrested the the son, who's about twenty-five or something. I never forgot that line, and one of my books is called Be Bad Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that scene, more or less, is in that book. You know, from that, that's a true event, you that's know, from this one. very cool deal. I don't know how I started on that conversation. <laughs> but, but uh, I was asking about proudest moment. Oh, the proudest moment. So anyway, we have a court trial about a year later. We get this guy in the mountains of Pennsylvania because of a traffic accident. He was a passenger in a car and the fledgling computer systems i put out this warrant the feds had a warrant on them and they got a call from a little old police station in pennsylvania are you looking for joe Blow? you know uh, why and He said well he was in a traffic accident and we we're just typing in the names of the traffic reports and this alert came up i said yes i'm looking for this guy so he was a passenger in a traffic accident that's how we found him yeah and so a long story short was uh the trial was tricky the feds the mafia you know all this stuff they both got convicted life sentences and i remember returning to my office bay and looking out the window with tremendous satisfaction you know and so those are the great moments yeah yeah, like yeah. i got both those bastards you know they got convicted they're going to jail Those are great moments and that's the only one I can think of right now. If it's a big case and I won, it's a tremendous
0: acceleration. feeling, yeah. Yeah. Okay, my last question, it's quite a good question, is what was your most bizarre case that you ever worked on? Uh, Okay,
1: this is a story that my wife wants in the next book. Right. A dominatrix team of two women at TWU University advertised in the 1970s I guess in sex newspapers. I don't know what the hell was available back then. That, you know, welcome men, we'll beat you up. You know, uh, Sadie and I will beat you up. Come to our house and call and make it... So this guy calls then and gets an appointment with these two uh, man-beaters, these dominatrixes. So he drives up there late one night. He comes in and they... uh, You know, the wooden stocks. Yeah. You know, that your hands and head are in. And so they right away lock him in this stock that's nailed to the living room floor in this old wooden house right in the city and so they take all his clothes off and they start beating the shit out of him right so it's getting crazy and he has to escape so he starts rocking that big wooden stock and rips it yeah. On the floor, yeah. you know? And it's a pretty enormous thing. And this is now about 2 o'clock in the morning. And back is through the front door with these women whipping him and trying to stop him. And runs down the middle of this street naked in this stock, which was no easy ordeal, right? And so then somebody hears all this commotion and women screaming, and we get the police call. Uh, there's a naked man in a wooden stock running down Bell Avenue. <laughs> So they call us in patrol, and it wasn't my district, but I was next door. And they say, you know, uh, 61, uh, there's a na- call of a naked man locked in a stock being chased by two screaming women. So we found, obviously found the guy you know, and he was exhausted and bloody, you know, so he, that hat, that hatchet I mentioned, I had in the car, or did I say that last night, I don't know, I, you know, I took it out, cut him loose, and he said, I said, well, um, do, you, do you want to press charges, well, what's really to press, I mean, he came there, Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so I drive up to the house and knock on the door, and they women in the leathers, you know, they're big fat women in leathers, they knock at the door and they, they look at me, and I said, I think we found something of yours <laughs> by chance have you lost a giant wooden stock <laughs> and so we gave them the stock back, and that's probably the most bizarre call that I can remember right now
0: <laughs>
1: night of the naked man in the, in the wooden stock <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> right Hock, Um,
0: thank you ever so much for your time I could have gone into like loads of stories these books are full of great stuff so definitely go out and buy Dead Right There and don't even think about it Hock Hockheim's books on his memories and confessions as a former law enforcement officer thanks for your time again you bet continue to support the show yes um, uh, <laughs> spread the word you can listen to us on all good podcast venues yeah Primal Radio take care